We apologise for the poor quality during the early part of this sermon. This was due to the deterioration of the original master tape, and we hope it doesn't spoil your enjoyment of this message by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. I should like to call your attention this morning to be found in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, in chapter 5, verses 22, 23, and 24. Verses 22, 23, and 24 in the fifth chapter of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. We come, as most of you will realize this morning, to a, a more detailed consideration of the teaching of uh, this passage. In other words, the uh, teaching of the New Testament and of the Bible with regard to marriage. Last Sunday morning, we looked at it in general. We uh, introduced the subject because we had to do that in way of the, in the light of the manner in which the apostle presents it to us. And uh, it is essential we should bear all that in mind. The spirit in which we approach this is important. Everything that is done in the realm of the church is different from what is done outside. The world has its debating societies, and they can debate the subject of marriage. And of course they do so in a particular way and manner. The two sides, for and against, and the supporters and partisans, we are accustomed to all that. But that isn't how the church faces a problem. It doesn't face any problem like that. Here we are confronted by this authority which we have in the word. We are not concerned to express our own opinions. Our one purpose is to understand the teaching of the word. So we all come together, not one group and another, opposition and government as it were, defense and attack, no, but we all come together in order to discover the teaching of the Holy Scripture. And we saw that certain great principles were laid down so clearly that all this is at once lifted up to the level of Christian doctrine at its highest. We are confronted by some of the most profound teaching found anywhere in the Scriptures concerning the nature of the Christian Church. Now then, having lifted those general principles, we can proceed to the particular application. And you notice the first thing is, therefore, an injunction which is given to wives. You remember, we saw, we reminded one another last Sunday morning that the wives are put before the husbands for one reason only, that the apostle is dealing with a question of submission. The principle was in verse 21, submitting yourselves one to another. In the fear of Christ, that's true of all members of the church. That is to be the general principle governing all our life and activity, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of Christ. Now then, in this matter of submission, he says, first of all, wives, submit yourselves or be subject to your own husbands as 
unto the Lord. Very well, we inevitably see, therefore, that the matter we've got to consider is this submission of wives to husbands. The apostle is not only reminding them of that, but he is telling them very plainly and very clearly that it is their duty to do this. As it is the duty of all of us to submit ourselves one to another. This is a very special thing, he says. So wives, submit yourselves unto your own husband. This is still more obvious because they are your husbands, your own husbands, and because of the teaching with respect to the whole position of marriage. And the big point, he says, that emerges here is this question of submission. That is the thing that he's emphasizing. And therefore we must look into this. Unfortunately, the apostle helps us to do so. You see, it isn't just an injunction thrown out. The scripture never does that. It always gives us reasons, supplies us with motives, helps us to understand exactly what we're doing, why we should be doing it, and therefore creates within us, if we approach it properly, a desire to do this and gives us a great delight in doing it. Now then, let's look at it. He gives us, first of all, a great motive for doing this. Why you submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. Now, we must be clear about this phrase. It can be and has been misunderstood. It doesn't mean this. It doesn't mean, wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands in exactly the same way as you submit yourselves unto the Lord. It doesn't mean that. That's going too far. The submission of every wife and indeed of every Christian believer, male or female, to the Lord Jesus Christ is an absolute one. The apostle doesn't say that about the relationship of the wives to the husbands. We are all the bond slaves of Jesus Christ. The slaves of Christ. But a wife is never told to be the slave of her husband. Our relationship to the Lord is one, I say, of complete, entire, absolute submission. Wives are not exalted to do that. Well, what does it mean? Well, what it means is this. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husband. Because it is a part of your duty to the Lord. Because it is an expression of your submission to the Lord. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husband. Well, now, do it in this way. Do it as a part of your submission to the Lord. In other words, you're not doing it only for the husband. You're doing it indeed primarily for the Lord himself. It's a repetition of that general point he makes in verse 21. Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of Christ. Very well. You don't do it in the last analysis for the husband's sake. Although you do it for his sake. But the ultimate reason and motive is not the husband, but as unto the Lord. You're doing it for Christ's sake. You're doing it because you know that he desires you to do it, because it is well-pleasing in, in his sight that you should be doing it. It is a part of your Christian behavior. It is a part of your whole discipleship. 
Whether ye eat or drink, says the apostle, using the same sort of argument in writing to the Corinthians in the first epistle in chapter 10, whether ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do it as unto the Lord. That's it. Everything we do is done for his sake, to please him, because we know that he would have us do this. Now then, here I think is something very important at the beginning, which lifts this up, you see, from the realm of controversy and enables us to approach it in the right spirit. If you are anxious, he says, in other words, to please the Lord Jesus Christ and to carry out his behests and his will, submit yourselves unto your own husband. Now, there can be no more compelling motive for any action than that. And if every Christian wife today is concerned above everything else to please the Lord Jesus Christ, she will find no difficulty in this paragraph. Indeed, it will be her greatest delight to do what the Apostle tells us here. I would go further. Never, perhaps, have we as Christian people had a greater opportunity of showing what Christianity really means than just at this present time, when the life of the world is becoming more and more obvious for what it is, when it is becoming increasingly chaotic in this married respect and marriage relationship and in every other respect. Here is a glorious opportunity for us to show the difference it makes to be a Christian. So Christian wives, says the apostle, you've got a wonderful opportunity. You can show that you're no longer pagans, that you're no longer irreligious, that you no longer belong to the world. And these other people, living as they do, asserting their own rights and displaying their arrogance and leading to all the chaos that characterizes life, when they look at you, they'll see something so different. They'll say, well, what is this? Why do you behave like this? What's the reason for it? And your only reason is this. Not, to, well, I just happen to be born like this. No, no. I am behaving like this because it is the will of my Lord. You immediately get an opportunity for preaching and stating the gospel. That's why the apostle is exhorting them. His whole exhortation, as we've seen in the whole of this chapter and most of the previous chapter, the point of the exhortation is that these Christian people are to show in their lives in every detail but once you become a Christian, you are different in every respect. And uh, this great characteristic of Christian living can be displayed by the wives submitting themselves to their own husbands. Very well. There is the grand motive. And unless we are moved by that and animated by that, well, it's obvious, of course, that no argument will appeal to us at all. If we are not already submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ, and concerned about his name and his honor. Above everything else, all other arguments will leave us untouched. So the apostle puts that first, and we have to put it first. But having said that, he then goes on to give us particular reasons, additional reasons. And here again, one cannot refrain from commenting upon the wealth and the glory of the scripture. Do you want particular reasons for doing this? Well, let me give you them as the apostle puts them before us. There are two great subsidiary reasons, he says, why every Christian wife should submit herself to her own husband. The first is what we may well call the order of nature. 
And the second is, of course, that this is something which belongs to the realm of the relationship of the church to the Lord Jesus Christ. But now let's look at this first reason. They're both in the 23rd verse. For, because, here's the argument, because the husband is the head of the wife. The second reason is, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Now let's look at this first reason. I say the first reason that the apostle gives the wives for submitting themselves unto their own husbands is that this is a part of the order of creation. It is a part, if you like, of God's ordinance, of God's decree, of God's will, of what God has stated with regard to this relationship of men and women. Now, it was in order to bring out this teaching that we read together at the beginning those various portions of Scripture. You see, in that uh, second chapter of Genesis, you go right back to the creation. And you noticed how the other references in the New Testament all went back to that. Now, that's what I mean by saying that it belongs uh, to the order of creation. Before you come to consider marriage uh, from the specifically uh, Christian standpoint, you must go further back, because the New Testament sends you back. It sends you back to this book of Genesis and to the whole question of creation. It also refers us to the question of the fall. I didn't read that portion from the third chapter of Genesis, but the crucial verse, of course, is the 16th verse of the third chapter of Genesis, uh, which tells us what God said to the woman as the result of her listening to Satan and his temptation and her eating of the forbidden fruit. Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. Now that is an addition, you notice. And we must pay careful attention to it. Now let us try to summarize what the teaching of the scripture is, therefore, concerning this most important matter of marriage and of the family. Let me try to extract the principles that are put before us in these various portions of scripture. They surely are these. First, and remember we are dealing essentially with marriage this morning. I'm not dealing in particular with the status of woman as such of all women, the scriptures are dealing with the married relationship of husbands and wives. We have to, to deduce from the scripture the uh, teaching with regard to women in general. You may say the whole question of uh, women in professions and things like that. I'm not really dealing with that at all this morning. We're dealing only with the question of marriage. That's what the apostle is talking about. He's addressing wives. He's not addressing unmarried women here. There is teaching about that, but it doesn't come within our province this morning, except indirectly. Very well, what is the teaching? It is this. First, you notice that the emphasis is put constantly upon the fact that man was created first, not the woman. You notice how the apostles use that argument. Man was created first, from which they deduce a priority for men. 
They emphasized the fact also that woman was made out of the men, taken out of the men, and meant to be a help for men, a help for men that was meat for him. None of the animals were that, says the scriptures. Uh, Adam gave name, names to all cattle and to the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found an help meat for him. And it was because there was no help meat for men amongst the animals that woman was created. Now, that is the basic teaching. And you notice that the apostles lay great stress upon that fact. Very well. Man then was created first. But not only that. Man was made the Lord of creation. It was to men that this authority was given over the brute and animal creation. It was men who was called upon to give names. Here you see are indications of men being put into a position of leadership, lordship, and authority and power. He takes the decisions. He gives these rulings. Now that is the fundamental teaching with regard to this whole matter. Then uh, the Apostle Peter, you remember, underlines all this in that uh, significant phrase of his where he tells the husbands to give honor uh, to the wife as unto the weaker vessel. Now what does he mean by weaker vessel? Well, clearly what he means is what is taught uh, so plainly in these early chapters of Genesis and indeed everywhere in the Bible. It means primarily uh, this whole question of men's headship and leadership. Man, physically speaking, is naturally stronger than woman. He was made to be such, and he is such. I could enter into this in great detail. I'm not going to do so. But I could establish all this with extreme ease, not merely from the standpoint of anatomy, but still more from the standpoint of physiology. Woman was not meant to be as strong as men physically, nervously, and in many other respects. She is constituted in a different manner. And when the apostle says that she is the weaker vessel, he is not speaking in any derogatory sense at all. All he's saying is that she is essentially different, and that man is always to remember that. He mustn't treat the woman as if she were his equal in these respects. He must remember that she has been made differently, and that he is to respect her, and to honor her, and to guard her, and to protect her accordingly. Very well then, here is this basic fundamental teaching. The man is uh, to be the head of the wife, and he is to be the head of the family. God made him in that way, endowed him with faculties and powers and propensities that enable him to do this, and so made woman that she should be the complement of man. Now, the word complement carries that notion of supplement, you see. That man, as it were, is not complete without woman. That's why these two become one flesh. Woman is the complement of men. But the emphasis, therefore, is this. That man is responsible not only for himself, but for his wife and for his family in all ultimate matters. And the wife is to help him, to support him, to aid him, to do everything she can in order to enable him to function as the Lord of creation into which position God has placed him. She is brought into being in order to help men to perform that great 
and wonderful and glorious task. Now then, there is this basic teaching with regard to the relationship of husbands and wives as laid down in the very order of creation in the most fundamental rules with regard to life of the life of men in this world. But we've got to make an addition. There, you see, it is before the fall. While men and women were still perfect, and while they were still in paradise, without any sin, without any defect in them at all. That was how God ordained it. But unfortunately, something happened. The fall. And here, you see, is a point which is made very especially by the Apostle Paul in that first epistle of his to Timothy in the second chapter and uh, verses 11 to 15 at, at the end, the section I read to you. You notice that the Apostle makes a great deal of the point that it was uh, the woman who was deceived and fell, and not the man. So the fall has made a difference. Indeed, Genesis 3.16 does establish that. Let me read it to you again. Unto the woman he said, Now because of what you've done, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception, from which one can but deduce that childbirth would probably have been painless were it not for sin and the fall. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, but for our purpose this morning, thy desire shall be to thy husband and he shall rule over thee. There's something further there. It's not only reiterating the lordship and the leadership and the headship already established before the fall, it is underlining it. He shall rule over thee. There is a new factor here. Woman's subordination to men has been increased as the result of the fall. Now, it is arguable that uh, this uh, edict was promulgated for this reason. That the very essence, you see, of the fall, of what happened to Eve, was this. That Eve, being confronted by the insinuation and by the suggestion of the devil, instead of doing what she should have done, what she'd been made to do and been taught to do, namely, to go to Adam and consult him about the question, took the decision upon herself. She put herself into the position of leadership. She dealt with the situation. And as the result of her dealing with the situation, instead of taking it to Adam as she should have done, she fell. She involved him in the fall likewise, and the whole human race fell. So that in a sense, the original sin was that woman failed to realize her place and her position in the married relationship. Usurped authority and power and position and therefore brought calamity and chaos to pass. Now, that is not only stated in Genesis 3.16. It is the whole basis of the apostles' argument with regard to women taking authority and teaching and preaching and things like that in the first epistle to Timothy in the second chapter. And he puts it specifically in terms of the relationship of wives and of husbands. Well, now, there is the teaching in its essence. But at once... I know that there is an objection. And the objection, of course, that one reads and hears so frequently. And alas, 
from evangelical people who claim to believe the scriptures as the infallible inspired word of God even from them what one hears so often is this oh but that's only Paul's view that's only the view of the apostle Paul he was obviously an anti-feminist and uh, he uh, was a man who uh, had uh, adopted the view that was so commonly taken of woman at that time. You're familiar with the argument. That's how it said. Then woman was in a very debased position. and Everybody throughout the world then held that view. Woman was but uh, goods, as it were, and a slave, and so on. And this was uh, true even of the Jews, and the apostle was just a typical rabbinical Jew. Now, of course, I'm not surprised that people who don't believe the Scripture as the Word of God say things like that. They, of course, and they're doing it in London today, from Christian pulpits, so-called. They don't hesitate to say not only that Paul was wrong, but that the Lord Jesus Christ was wrong. They are the authority. They know. They understand. Well, I don't argue with people like that. I just say that I can't have any discussion with them at all, because it's not a question of putting up my opinion against theirs. That's just not Christian. There's nothing else to say about it. It's not Christian at all. The Christian is a man who submits himself entirely to this revelation. He knows nothing apart from this. So when we hear this argument, we not only bemoan it and regret it, but we have to answer it, and we answer it like this. It's perfectly true to say that the view of woman at the time of our Lord and of the Apostle Paul was debased, speaking generally. But it wasn't the Jews' view, because they had these scriptures and believed them. And it most certainly was not the Apostle Paul's view. Did you notice what he said there in 1 Corinthians 11? He said, neither is the woman without the man, nor the man without the woman. It was this great apostle of all who gloried in the fact that in Christ Jesus there was neither barbarian nor Scythian, bond nor free, male nor female. It was a great part of his preaching of the gospel to say, look here, in this matter of salvation, men and women are equal. And woman has an equal chance in salvation with men. He gloried in that. And there is no man who speaks more delicately or more gloriously about womanhood and the true glory of womanhood than the Apostle Paul. And you notice that he doesn't stop at just giving us an account of the duty of the wife toward the husband. He always tells us about the duty of the husband to the wife. And he shows that the Christian husband's view of womanhood and of woman and of his wife is more exalted than anything the world has ever heard. It puts everything into its right position. He always gives us, I say, the two sides. But apart from all that... Didn't you notice as I read the quotations that the apostle never puts these things forward as his own opinion? He always goes back to Genesis. He always goes back to the order of creation. He says, it isn't my opinion, this. He says, this is what God has laid down. And the apostle's only concern is that the truth of God should be known and that what God ordained should be put constantly into practice. So this tendency to say it's only Paul's opinion is, you know, a denial of the scripture. Now, my friend, you've got to be clear about this. You, if you say that you believe that the Bible is the infallible and inspired word of God, well, then you must not speak like that about the Apostle Paul. 
Because when he writes, he not only quotes the scripture, but he writes as an inspired apostle. When he gives his own opinion, he's always careful to tell you that. And if he doesn't say it's his own opinion, well then it is inspired. You remember Peter tells his readers to listen to the apostle Paul, even as they do to the other scriptures. He says there are some people who rest his arguments and his writings, even as they do the other scriptures also. What Paul writes is scripture. And you're not arguing with Paul, you are arguing with God, you are arguing with the Holy Ghost. What Paul writes is scripture. And you're not arguing with Paul, you are arguing with God, you are arguing with the Holy Ghost. And at the same time, you're putting yourself into a contradictory position of saying that you believe the Bible only as long as it doesn't contradict what you happen to believe because you're a creature of the 20th century. And that is a denial of a belief in the authority of the scripture. Very well then, having dealt with that foolish objection, and there is nothing that I know of that is more foolish than such talk. Let me sum it up again. Woman then, according to this, the wife is in this position. To be subject to her husband does not mean that she is the slave of her husband. It doesn't mean that she's inferior to her husband as such. It doesn't mean that for a moment. We shall see this still more clearly when we come to consider what the apostle says about the duty of the husband to the wife. What is he saying then? Well, what he's saying is this, that the woman is different, that she is the complement of the men, and that what he does prohibit is that a woman should seek to be manly or that a woman should seek to behave as a man, or that a woman should seek to usurp the place and the position of the power which have been given to men by God himself. That's all he's saying. It isn't slavery. But he's exhorting them to realize what God has ordained. Therefore, the wife should rejoice in her gifts. She should rejoice in her position. She's been made by God to help men to function as God's representative in this world. She is to be the homemaker, the mother, the helper of men, his comforter, his guide, the one to whom he can speak and look for comfort and encouragement. She's a help meet for men. Men who realizes the truth about himself. She realizes the truth. And thus she comes and compliments him and helps him and aids him. And together they are living to the glory of God and to the Lord Jesus Christ. I wonder whether an illustration will help at this point. You see, the idea of leadership or headship seems to be the thing that stumbles people because they seem to think that that of necessity carries the idea of inherent and essential inferiority. It does nothing of the sort. Let me give you an illustration, therefore. This whole headship of the man, the husband, in the married relationship is comparable in many ways to that of troops to their leader. Now, an army would be completely chaotic if everybody had the right to decide what's going to be done next. No, the moment a man joins an armed force, he is subjecting himself. He is saying he's going to obey the command that comes down to him. Whatever he may think of it, it is his business to do it. He is granting this right of command to the one who is set above him. And though he may have his own ideas and opinions, it doesn't matter. He now forgoes all that, he submits and he subjects himself. That's one illustration. Or, if you like, take a number of men in a team playing football or cricket. 
Well, the first thing they have to do is to appoint a captain. They're not all captains. If they did, they'd never win a match. The first thing they do is to appoint one amongst themselves as a captain. He may not even be the best player in the team, but they decide that on the whole he's got the greatest gifts of leadership. So they put him into the position of captain. And having done that, they've got to submit themselves to him. If they don't, chaos is returned again. Or imagine a committee being appointed to consider a subject. A number of men are appointed. What is the first thing they do? Well, they say the first thing we must do is to appoint a chairman. Of course. Why? Well, you must have some authority. You can't transact business unless there's a chair to address and someone there, and you've got to abide by the ruling of the chairman. It's the appointing of a chairman. Again, you see, the question of inferiority doesn't come in. What it means is this, that in order to do this thing efficiently, you must have a leader. Take the House of Commons. What is the first thing they do? Well, they have to appoint a speaker. And the business of the speaker is just to sit in the chair and exercise control. He gives his rulings. Again, it doesn't mean for a moment he's the greatest man in the House of Commons and that they're all inferior to him. No, but in their wisdom, and because business can't be transacted apart from this, they must set someone in this position of authority. And all the Bible teaches is this, that God has set man, the husband, in that position. So he says to the wives, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands. For that reason, he has been appointed the head. But there is a still greater argument. Did you notice it in 1 Corinthians 11? The argument is this, that the man, the husband, is the head of the wife. Yes, and Christ is the head of the man. Yes, and God is the head of Christ. That's the answer, that's the argument that can't be answered. In what sense is God the head of Christ? Well, it's what we sometimes call the economic trinity, isn't it? The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are co-equal and co-eternal. Well, how can the Father, God, be the head of Christ? Oh, for the purpose of salvation. The Son has subordinated himself to the Father, and the Spirit has subordinated himself to the Son and to the Father. It is a voluntary subordination. Why? In order that salvation may be carried out. It is voluntary. It is essential in the carrying out of the work. The son said, here I am, send me. He volunteered. He resigns this aspect of equality. He becomes the servant of his father. And the father sends him. The head of, the, of Christ is God. Now then, wives, that is the way in which the apostle puts it. As the head of Christ is God, so Christ is the head of the man, and so the man is the head of the woman. Therefore, wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands, as unto the Lord. Now there is a positive exposition of this tremendous, amazing teaching, which alone, of course, gives us a true view of marriage. I trust that, incidentally, I have been dealing with an argument, a foolish argument again, that is so often brought forward. But somebody says, you know, this is quite wrong. I know many instances where the wife is a much abler person than the husband, much more gifted in every respect. And are you saying that a brilliant, gifted woman like this has got to subject herself to her husband, to a man who is altogether inferior to her? Well, now, there's only one answer to that, of course, that you are arguing against God. God knows all about things like that. What God is saying is this, that if that gifted, brilliant woman is not subjecting herself to her own husband, she is sinning. 
whatever the gifts, she is to do that. On which I would make two comments. No woman, whatever her gifts, has a right even to contemplate marrying a given individual unless she's prepared to submit in that way. This voluntary submission, the way in which Christ submitted and subordinated himself, she is to do that. And unless she's prepared to do it, unless she is convinced that she can thus submit herself to this man, she shouldn't marry him. If she goes into it with any other idea, it is against the will of God. She is committing sin. My second comment would be this. I think one of the most wonderful things I've ever been privileged to witness in my life was just that very thing to which I'm referring actually being put into practice. It was my custom for a number of years to go and preach in a certain church in the provinces and to spend the night after preaching twice always in the, the manse with the minister and his wife. And uh, it was interesting to me for this reason, that it was obvious to me on the first visit that from the sheer standpoint of ability, there was no comparison between the husband and the wife. The wife was an exceptionally able and brilliant woman. The husband was not without his gifts, but, he, but his, his main gifts were in personality, an exceptionally nice and friendly and kind and gracious man. But from sheer intellectual ability, there was no comparison. Indeed, their very academic record, they were both graduates, their very academic records had proved this. The woman had taken a degree in a subject that very few women took up at that particular time, and she'd taken the first-class honors. The husband, taking a much easier subject, had only had a second class. Now, there was no question, I say, as to the ability, her grasp, her understanding, her everything. It struck you immediately and became more and more clear as I got to know them. But this was the thing. I say, I don't know that I've ever seen anything more wonderful than the way in which that woman always put her husband into this scriptural position. She did it in a very clever and in a very subtle way. She used to put arguments into his mouth. But she always put it in this way, as if he'd said it, not her. Well, all right. All right. There is that amusing aspect to it, but I'm reporting it to you as one of the most moving and tremendous things I've ever experienced. She was not only an able woman, she was a Christian woman, you see. And she was putting this principle into operation. The husband is the head. He always had to stake the decision. She'd supplied him with the reasons. She'd shown him what the decision inevitably was. But she was acting as a helpmeet for him. She'd got these qualities that he lacked. She was complimenting. She was supplementing. She was really doing this very thing. And the husband was the head. And the children were referred to him. She was guarding his position. And I say it is one of the most wonderful things that I've ever been privileged to see and to witness. Let me therefore in a closing word show you the importance of realizing and grasping and understanding this teaching. Why is this all so important, and especially today? Let me put it still more like this. Why is it more important that I should have been doing what I've been doing this morning rather than give you my opinion on the position in Algeria? Well, I'll tell you. 
It is the failure to understand and to implement this very teaching that is causing most of the problems in the world today. What is the basic problem in the world today? It is the problem of authority. The chaos in the world today is due to the fact that people in every realm and department of life have lost all respect for authority. Whether it be between nations or between parts of nations, whether it be in industry, whether it be in the home, whether it be in the schools or anywhere else. It's the loss of authority. And I verily believe this, that it rarely starts in the home and in the married relationship. That is why I venture to say that no statesman whose own marriage has broken down has rarely a right to speak about these problems. If he fails in the sphere where he's most competent, what right is he to speak in other? He ought to retire out of public life. Because the real breakdown starts in the home and in the married relationship. And I am asserting that the appalling increase in divorce which has taken place since the war, I'm told it's going down a little at the moment, but I suggest to you that that's only temporary and can be explained statistically. But the appalling increase in divorce since the war is due to one thing only, that men and women don't understand this scriptural teaching about marriage and about husbands and wives. It is also the explanation of the breakdown in family and in home life, which is again so obvious at the present time. The family is ceasing to be the center that it was, and everybody's out somewhere and out at all hours of the night. Family life, this cohesion, this unit is disappearing. It is also the explanation of the unruliness and the indiscipline amongst children. It is the main explanation of juvenile delinquency. Do you know that this can be proved even from statistics? These poor children who become delinquents are almost invariably the children of broken homes, broken marriages. Why? Well, the poor children have never been given a chance. You see, they've been brought up in an atmosphere of uncertainty and indecision. They've been brought up in an atmosphere of conflict where wife is against husband and husband against wife. And they become cynics in their tender years. They have no respect for either or for anybody or anything. The place where a child should have confidence and should be able to look up for authority and leadership and guidance has gone. There's nothing there. And the poor child becomes a delinquent. He has been brought up in this atmosphere of conflict between father and mother, husband and wife. And indeed, there are other aspects of this that seem to me to be even more sinister. Isn't it a fact that increasingly men have been abrogating this position and retiring out of it and not doing their duty as husbands and as fathers in sheer laziness and in sheer selfishness? Husbands are increasingly leaving it to the wife, leaving it to the mother. Can't be bothered. Comes home tired. Take the children. Keep them from me. You answer them. Isn't this increasingly happening? The husband is deliberately vacating the position in which God has put him. It's happening amongst Christian people. But it's happening still more amongst the non-Christian. The husband is evacuating his own position, leaving it in his laziness to the wife. This is happening in many directions, of course. So many Christian people today won't touch politics. They say, dirty game, but what an appalling argument. It's their duty to, as citizens of the country. But here it is particularly in this realm. Then on the other side, of course, 
Feminism has led to an aggressiveness on the part of the wife, the woman, the mother. She is setting herself up as the authority and undermining the influence of the father in the minds of the children because she wants to have it all. This totally false and wrong approach to the whole position. Now, I don't say this in a spirit of criticism. We are seeing this a great deal in this country, but nothing like the extent to which they're seeing it in the United States of America. There you have what may more or less be called a matriarchal society. And the view of the man is increasingly becoming this. He's just the one to provide the dollars. He's just the wage earner. He's the man who brings in the money. The woman, she's the cultured person. She's the head of the home. The children look to her. He's just the man who brings in the money. It's a matriarchal society. And it seems to me to be a very dangerous thing. The result is, of course, that you get crime and all the terrible social problems with which they're grappling in that country. And then as they influence every other country through their films and in various other ways, it is being spread throughout the entire world. A matriarchal society with the woman as the head and center of the home is a denial of the biblical teaching and is indeed a repetition of the original sin of Eve. The problem is, of course, increasingly being recognized. That is why you've got to have marriage guidance councils and so on. But alas, how do they approach them? They approach them in terms of psychology. And yet, if you examine the married life of so many of these psychologists, you'd have a terrible shock. These people who give advice as to how marriages are to be entered into, how they're to be preserved and kept. They can't do it in their own marriages. Of course they can't. It isn't psychology, it isn't a little common sense and wisdom and the spirit of comradeship and give and take. We know all about that. The world knows all about it, but it can't practice it. No, no, there is only one hope until God is the authority. And men and wife submit themselves to him unless they do it as unto the Lord and realize it's the same sort of headship as that of God over Christ and Christ over men. There is no hope. And it is as men and women in the last hundred years have increasingly departed from the authority of this book that this terrible social blight and problem has become more and more evident. I know we are told, no, no, you want to go back to you to that stern, repressive, autocratic Victorian husband and father. I want nothing of the sort. I know that a lot of the modern is a reaction against that. I condemn that as much as this. We must come back to the Bible. I'm not advocating come back to Victorianism. Come back to God. Come back to Christ. Come back to the revelation, the authoritative word of God and see his perfect plan Man and the woman by his side, complimenting him, his helpmeet, loving one another, revering, respecting, honoring one another, but never confusing the two spheres. Well, God willing, we shall go on with the consideration of the Apostles' teaching next Sunday morning, but may he in his grace enable us not only to see the teaching, but to submit ourselves to it, that thereby we may bring honor and glory to the name of our blessed Lord, as unto the Lord. Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust audio library are now available for free download. 
You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.